Welcome back to the Death and Life Podcast. I'm your host, J.D. Pirtle. Today, we're going to sit down in the LT Maker Lab at Lang Tech College Prep High School in Chicago with educator and technologist Jeff Solon. Jeff is the mind behind the LT Maker Lab, an award-winning national board certified teacher and a visiting lecturer at the University of Illinois at Chicago. During our conversation, Jeff shares his methodology for teaching digital fabrication, how he approaches difficult things like assessment in a makerspace, and also how he inspires his students to make amazing things. Jeff also told me about how, and this is no small feat, he and a group of teachers convinced Chicago public schools to make computer science a graduation requirement for 400,000 students. But first, a little context. Lane Tech is big. I mean, really big. With 4,200 students, it's the largest high school in Chicago. To support that student body, Lane employs 250 teachers and 100 additional staff members. But Lane is also physically big. It sits on a 30-acre campus in the Roscoe Village neighborhood of Chicago, and it can be seen from a distance as you approach the school from either the north or the south on Western Avenue. The school originally opened in 1908 as Albert Grannis Lane Manual Training High School. Students received vocational training that increased in complexity year after year. Freshmen learned carpentry, cabinet making, and wood turning. During sophomore year, students moved on to learn the foundry, forge, welding, core making, and molding techniques. Juniors advanced to the machine shop, and seniors completed their time at Lane in the most advanced place, the electric shop. The school moved to its current campus in 1930, and the name was simplified to Lane Tech in 1934. Whenever I visit Lane Tech and cross the large tree-filled lawn to the entrance of the school, I always feel like I'm on a small college campus. This impression becomes even more pronounced as you walk through the hallways. There are large labs, studios, and classrooms everywhere with students dancing or working with aquaponics or building robots or learning a new language, spoken or programming. Along many of the hallways of Lane Tech, large murals depict men engaged in activities like steelmaking, construction, and commerce. Forty murals from the Chicago's Second World's Fair, entitled Century of Progress, found a home at Lane after the World's Fair concluded. The murals, painted by Miklos Gaspar and commissioned by General Motors, depict each state's contribution of raw materials necessary to manufacture a General Motors car. Women are noticeably missing from the murals at Lane. Women weren't even admitted to the school until 1971. This change brought protests from a group of students who feared the academic excellence Lane was known for would dwindle. Luckily, the Board of Education ignored these protests, and the overall academic quality of Lane Tech has only improved since 1971. In fact, according to the school's website, more PhDs have graduated from Lane Tech than any other high school in the nation. Students at Lane Tech have access to a wide range of English, history, math, science, art, music, computer science, and world language courses. But they can also take courses in one classroom that really evokes Lane Tech's long history of learning by doing. The LT Maker Lab, built by educator and technologist Jeff Solon, is a 21st century woodshop meets digital fabrication lab. At 4,000 square feet, it's also one of the largest makerspaces I've personally seen in a high school, and very well equipped. But it's not really the tools that make the space special. It's Jeff's approach to how he and the students learn in this space. Jeff, I just want to say thanks again for taking time to talk to me and to our listeners. So I was wondering if you just wanted to kind of describe, since this is, you know, a podcast and we're not seeing anything, if you wanted to describe this space. I understand from reading it's like 4,000 square feet, so yeah. good size. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty pretty big size. Um, 
It's one of the bigger classrooms, I would imagine, in the country. Um, it actually was a foundry. Uh, Lane Tech had two foundries. Um, one was an oil-based foundry and one was a water-based foundry. So this was the water-based foundry. Oh, wow. So I know which particular area of the room there used to be a giant pile of sand and I'm actually not very well versed in how foundries operate. It's just pretty cool sure. to me to know that this was that kind of space. And if you look up on the ceiling, like kind of over there, um, there's a giant opening that's been closed off, but that was part of the ventilation for the for the foundry. So, um, so yeah, it's pretty cool uh, history to it. Uh, but yeah, it's about 4,000 square feet. There was a, uh, underneath where we're sitting, sort of the corner of the room is this closed off room. I, I refer to it as the milling room because the CNC mills are in there. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty stock full of um, some pretty typical uh, makerspace equipment. Sure. Um, so we've got four, well, five now because we're borrowing one, but um, so five laser cutters mm-hmm. uh, all all sitting on uh, two-stage HEPA filters and um, about, like I think, 12 3D printers in here right now. Oh, wow. Uh, seven CNC mills, a uh, good number, maybe eight um, vinyl cutters, uh, which cut vinyl and other stuff, obviously. Um, whole lot of some power, you know, uh, power tools and, and um, like lo-fi prototyping materials. So we've got everything sure. from scroll saw to drill press and table saw and chop saw to air compressor and some drills and then um, a lot of supplies, post-it notes, tape markers, um, sure. anything that we can kind of use to help get something from your head into your hands. Um, I just kind of try and keep on hand and manage accordingly. And then a bunch of storage shelves for, for student projects. That was kind of an afterthought. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have any idea what I was doing when I built this place. Um, got, got some help from some friends and people um, try to make it as malleable as possible so that it, mistakes that I made could be corrected if, if, if they could. Sure. Um, and uh, so like one of the things was we've got this 4,000 square foot classroom and then nowhere to put student projects, which is kind of like hilarious. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm out of room in here, but it, being out of room in a classroom this big is kind of, shouldn't really happen. So, um, but yeah, so we've got a place for storing stuff and student projects and bins for them to put their materials in when they're working on projects and it's it's come a long way um so a few different collaboration spaces like the one we're sitting in now so students can hook up their laptop and hook up to a tv and share their ideas and work together on on designing stuff um we've uh moved things around in the room to better locations where they'll be used more there used to be all 3d printers up here it was like a 3d printing loft mm-hmm. that didn't really make any sense it sounded cool Right. Um, but then nobody really came up here all that often. Um, so we moved things downstairs. Um, we've got, uh, I've done a bunch with smart lighting here, mm-hmm. uh, which has been really helpful. So it can be fun. I mean, there's parts of it that are fun, but um, functionally all the work table lights and the the ceiling lights, the ones of the work table and then one big ceiling light turn red when there's five minutes left in class. Oh, so wow. everybody, all the, we yeah. have 50 minute periods, which is, a, which is a, hard to do in a space like this. I would prefer block scheduling in that sense, but we have short 50 minute periods. And so when there's five minutes left, I need kids to start cleaning things up and putting things away. And, and the lights help kind of give notice that you've got, it's like a big warning light. So um, like a classroom management tool. Yeah. It with works like really Philips smart lights or some other brand. Yeah. We'd use LifeX. I've tried Philips Hue and gone through a bunch of different things, but yeah, the, right now we're using LifeX bulbs and, um, 
yeah, they work. They work great. Just kind of fabricated my own little cheap fixtures to hang from the power drops, and then um, bought these like extra glass housings from like random light fixtures at Home Depot, and they're like four bucks a piece, and then kind of put it together. The bulb's the expensive part; the rest of it's pretty cheap. Yeah, that's really smart. I mean, it seems like with these kind of projects and these tools, they're so engrossing for the kids that sometimes pulling them away is really tough, which yeah. is a good problem to have. Yeah, but, it's a great problem to have. But it sounds like you came up with a really novel and an effective um, and innovative classroom management tool. Yeah, it works. It, it works well. It, um, there's There's been a lot of like, I guess I, I, I've kind of built the lab and the curriculum in in the same sort of mold. And it's exactly the mold that I'm trying to get across to my students, just this kind of nature of things being iterative. And um, I, I did not build the lab perfectly the first time. It's not perfect now. It changes every year. I didn't build the curriculum perfectly the first time. It changes every year. It's different every year. Um, and so I think it's a good opportunity when you're being honest with your students to say, um, what you're working on is not going to be perfect the first time. And it's going to take iterations. And it's going to, and hopefully you, you get to where you want to be with it. But um, if you do something perfect the first time, it's probably either not very interesting or something that, or, or luck or something weird. I mean, right. Or a Mozart kind of person yeah, yeah, who can yeah, do right. it perfectly the first time. Yeah. I mean, I tell them about every platform or app or whatever that they're really into, whether it's like Snapchat or anything else. I tell them there's, there's, those did not just get coded and worked like, it, you know, it's been iterative and it's, it's come a long way and changed a lot. All of, all of these platforms that they use have gone through lots of changes. So um, the lab has been the same way from moving things around to changing um, projects and curriculum to be more engaging. Um, and it's been kind of like a, a fun way to a fun way to teach, um, mm -hmm. trying to get them to kind of grasp that same idea. There's a mural on the wall, which starts like right over here. I know it's um, for the listeners aren't going to be able to see this, but um, there's a. It, it tells a story of, a, of how things are in the lab too. And so it starts with this light bulb off on the left and then these gears start turning and then you get to this head with these arrows going around it and the whole, in the middle of the, in the middle of the head, you'll see these um, digital fabrication tools. It's like a laser and a pencil and an extruder and stuff like that. And the whole idea is that you've, you've come from this idea into this iterative cycle. And at some point you bust out of it. Like it's not defined, but at some point you've iterated enough that you, you get out of that cycle and at the very end is this smiley face and like an emoji smiley face. And we had originally thought, Oh, we'll have a, have like a finish, like a finish line flag or a checker flag. And I sure. thought you're never really done. I mean, like you might make a lot of changes to it and get somewhere you're happy, but a lot of times you're just like, I would still do another iteration if I could on it. Sure. Like a work and, in progress. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, everything's kind of a work in progress. That's worth having fun with. And, um, so that we, came up with this idea of just like the smiley face emoji to represent being like getting to where you want a place where you're happy with it. So satisfaction is kind of the end product, even if it's a work in progress, even sure. if it's a slice one day in the life of the project when it's due or when it's time to move on to another unit or a right. lesson. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's a great, a great lesson for the kids. Um, so I think it's interesting cause you were a professional developer in companies like Motorola mm -hmm. before becoming a teacher and you've been teaching for a long time. So I'm just curious about, what was it that, what was the impetus behind your move from the professional developing world to being a teacher? Cause you were at uh, another school before this, correct? I was, yeah. So this is my, um, I'm just finishing right now my 17th year teaching. Oh, wow. So yeah, that's 
hard to say out loud, but yeah, um, congratulations. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. I think. Uh, uh, yeah, so I started out as a, um, a software engineer, and Motorola was the first company out of college that I worked for. I uh, worked for a few different internet consulting companies. Um, had the um, luck of participating in the whole dot-com bust era of things. Uh, it was a strange time to be a software engineer, and fun. Um, kind of just kept bouncing from company to company, and every time I'd bounce, I'd make a little bit more money, and mm-hmm. um, was able to get my pay up pretty quickly, but sort of by either getting laid off or companies folding or getting gobbled up. It was, it was weird. Yeah. Um, but in the middle of all that, I just kind of started to feel like I wasn't, I guess like doing the world, it sounds kind of cheesy, but like doing the world any good. I, I felt like I was working really hard on stuff and then my boss would make a hundred bucks more. And then my boss's boss would make a thousand bucks more. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of grunting away. Um, so I just didn't feel like, it didn't feel like what I would really, what I really wanted to spend most of my day doing. I wanted to have a, a bit more impact, or and I just felt like I wanted to have more impact. And somebody had said to me once they thought I would be a good teacher, and I just kind of was like, "It'd be an interest." I never really thought about doing that. Um, and then I applied for a program through the Golden Apple Foundation in partnership with Northwestern University called um, the Golden Apple Gate Program. So it was Golden Apple Teacher Education Program, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, which doesn't exist anymore, probably because it was too successful, so they had to get rid of it. Um, it's it's in it does exist in another flavor called New Teach and You Teach at Northwestern, mm-hmm. but not through Golden Apple, I don't believe. Um, so it was a scholarship program that largely paid for uh, alternative teacher certification. So you would go to mm-hmm. classes, do a little bit of student teaching, and it, it was designed to get people out of industry and into teaching and to stay there. Um, and, uh, I got waitlisted, so I, I didn't, I didn't get in. So I was like, okay, you know, it was worth a shot and I'll, um, just kind of roll with the punches and keep doing what I'm doing. And, uh, they said when I got waitlisted, they said that they had, um, they didn't have enough money, but if they had, if they found a way to get more money that they would open up another slot and let me in. And so I became a really squeaky wheel, uh, which I tell my students to do too. But they, I just kept asking and saying, Hey, just, just curious if any more money come in, any more money come in. And I think it really was one of the cases of like the squeaky wheel got the grease. So eventually I got a call because one of the people in the program had already been working at an internship, had already had an arranged internship or um, student teaching set up. And so that, that was the spot they were really trying to get the money for. And so they had that spot free up. So they, they had room to put another seat in the program, but it was the student teaching part that they had to kind of find another spot for. Sure. So when that freed up, they called me and they said, um, we had a spot open up. Do you want to do it? And it was, it was, I really remember the call like vividly because it was, the question really was, Hey, real quick, do you want to change your career? Like, do you want to in your life? Yeah. You want to change your life, your career and lose like 70% of your pay. And I was like, um, can I talk to my wife and just kind of think through this for more than a quick second? You know, like, yeah, no problem. And I was like, I, I'm almost positive I want to do it. I just like, I, I don't feel like it's the smartest thing to do, like to make a decision right now on it. So I just need to think for a second. And so they're like, yeah, no problem. And I, my wife's awesome and super supportive. And she was like, you should totally go for it. And I was like, all right. Um, 
really no harm, no foul. It was mostly paid for, or if not all the way paid for. And I figured if it, if it was like, wow, this is not a good idea, then I could go back into industry and I wouldn't lose my credentials or what I had done. Right. Um, so I kind of went for it and ended up, um, ended up teaching my, I got a job right out of the program at Northside College Prep and went over there um, and helped build up a, a pretty successful computer science program there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then about 11, uh, things were up and down that really good there, but uh, we had great administrations, worked with some awesome people and made incredible connections to students and started a robotics program there, all kinds of fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was, uh, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but there was fairly passive support of computer science there instead of active support of computer science. So a lot of it was like, good luck and we're proud of what you're doing, but you know, we need more kids in your program, but not really helping to make, helping get more kids in the program. So this was like before hour of code and the, the country yeah. kind of started to get on board yeah, with having before. computer science. So really you were kind of early in that whole process. So maybe that was yeah. why there wasn't as much support. Yeah. Um, yes, it was before most of that was going on and we were, uh, I was part of a small team of people helping to make some changes on that, working with um, code.org and some, capacity, but also, uh, working a bunch with a really, really awesome group of people from exploring computer science, um, Gail Chapman and, uh, Joanna Good and, um, Jay Margolis and uh, the curriculum that was based off of Jane's book stuck in the shallow end, which is a really phenomenal book, um, that does sort of a, uh, case study, um, of some different schools in the LA, LAUSD, LA Unified School District. Mm and so we f- we fell in love with their curriculum and helped get it to Chicago, and then through some grants with the National Science Foundation, we we're able to do professional development for a lot of teachers and um, start getting the, getting that rolled out more. And if you fast forward enough, we got the um, Board of Education in Chicago to make computer science one credit computer science a graduation requirement, and exploring computer science is that freshman course that that uh, most kids will take to to uh, achieve that that uh, credit. So, so that, that was, I mean, just to back up for a second. Yeah. So you were part of a group of people that got this. This is, I mean, for, for people who are not in Chicago, I mean, you got this to be a graduation requirement for all for Chicago, all Chicago public, public schools. schools. Yeah, yeah that's have, incredible. Yeah, it was a pretty big move, and we really saw it very clearly to us as a social justice issue. So we, it was about getting equitable and accessible computer science education to all the kids in Chicago, not some kids in Chicago in certain sure. areas. Um and sometimes you got to put the cart before the horse a little bit on that. And when the requirements there, then you can start. Then there's it's easier to justify the importance of getting teachers proper professional development um, and meaningful professional development to help them feel good about teaching this particular content. Um, so that was all sort of built into the whole process, and, and it was a long fight. I mean, we've been fighting that for for t- we had been working on it for years and years and years and this just happened like three I think three years ago or something like that um, but yeah there's a little under 400,000 kids in Chicago public schools and wow. 26,000 teachers like 600 schools um, about 100 high schools or so sure. uh, so we, we saw it as an opportunity to really get Chicago public school kids what they what we felt they, they deserved um, so at Northside uh, things were were good but there was some passive support and um, Lane uh, at, at the time it was just Dan Law was the only 
uh, computer science teacher here, and um, him and the administration, Demir Ara, namely, um, asked if they could talk to me, and uh, it was really cool. It was the only time I think in in teaching that I had been actively kind of recruited in a sort of sense like that. So it felt good, like I, like I was. It felt good to know that somebody was sort of asking me to come be a part of their program. I'd, I'd had sort of little informal offers here and there, but nothing like as as um as specific as this, I guess. So they asked me to come by, and I was I thinking I'll talk to anybody about anything. Clearly, sure. yeah. <laughs> here we are. <laughs> um, so I yeah, I figure out I'm always up for a chat. So. Um, I came by thinking I'd just BS with them about whatever. Yeah. And I ended up here for three hours um, talking about what they had in mind. And they were like, you know, we want to we want to build up a big computer science program. We want to give you creative th creative freedom, add new classes, um, do some new stuff, uh, expand, uh, hire more teachers. And we want computer science to be a pillar of the school. And I was like, my jaw almost dropped. I was like, really? That's you sure? Like, so I was thinking that sounds fantastic. And I, and I went home and I thought, wow, I didn't, I didn't expect to be, I thought it was going to be like, yeah, it sounds cool, man. And then leave. And then I left thinking, wow, that would be, that's sounds phenomenal. Like exactly what I would like to do next in my career. So, and this is, by the way, this lab wasn't even an idea yet. Oh, so, so this is before any this of this, is, this is before any of it. This wasn't even, the, a maker lab wasn't even in the picture. It was just about coming in and teaching computer science and building up a, a CS program or helping to build up a CS program. So uh, I wrote an email back to uh, Demir Ara, the assistant principal that oversees CS, um, who's now like, he's my boss, but he's also you know a good friend of mine. And uh, and I said, let me get this straight. You said all these things. I like literally listed everything out. You said you wanted to make it a pillar of the school. You said creative freedom. You said adding new classes. You said more kids in CS. You said this. You said that. <laughs> and you pretty much wrote back, "Yep, yeah, that's what that's what we're that's what we're looking to do." So then I decided, to, oh, "This sounds great. I want to do this." Um, so I made the jump. And before the school year started, we had hired two more people, so there was four. Mm -hmm. And then each year we've gradually expanded, and this is the end of my sixth year here. Mm -hmm. So that's not that long. Right. So at the end of six years, and we have 12 full-time computer science teachers, about 1,900 kids in computer science, and 13 different CS courses, running the gamut from media computation to two AP computer science courses, um, web development, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, Android apps development, Swift development, wow. uh, Maker Lab, microarchitecture and logic design, exploring computer science, programming one sure this program's part of computer science do you see that as a good model i mean like schools i think are really trying to figure out a good question where where does the making happen where does the maker program happen and it sounds like it's really worth for you guys to have it be part of computer science it has but i don't think that it has to be there i think it's kind of a um i'm a computer scientist and i'm in the computer science program and i was the one that wanted to build like that kind of have that or you know built the lab Sure. So I think it naturally fell into computer science because of that. But I don't think that it has to be, it, it's, it's interesting because it really does sit, I usually tell people like there's a, like a Venn diagram. It's that, it's this middle, this little middle slice that covers math, computer science, engineering, architecture, design, mechanical engineering, 
art. I don't know if I think I already said art, but like yeah, uh, design space. Yeah, just everything. like it's kind of like an everything space. Um, yeah, and when it's done right, you're learning about all those things kind of accidentally, mm -hmm. um, and and at the same time, because we talk about this a lot in at least in our department or in education space, but about how how siloed Americans education system is and in, and largely around the world but that like there's the math room or like the math rooms and the english rooms and the science rooms and, right and the computer science rooms and when you get out of school it doesn't work that way nobody leaves when they're working on a hard problem they don't leave to go to a special room for mathing and then right. go to another one for writing or whatever you know so it's like we're trying to think about like how it's hard in a very siloed structured huge system of like ship like chicago public schools or a big public school system to to break those silos down right so i see this as a space that really in a small way does does that um maybe not in a small way but in a significant way does that right yeah seems where, pretty significant yeah where we have like lots of stuff happening in here at the same time so we definitely do computer science in here um but we also definitely do art in here and we right. definitely do some engineering in here and we definitely do some architecture in here. Uh, we're doing a lot of like 3D, um, 3D CAD, 3D modeling, uh, 2D design, 3D design. Right. And I think if you ask most of the world and you said 3D design, wh wh what department is that? And if you had to pigeonhole it, probably most wouldn't just default to computer science. It would probably be something sure. like architecture or art or design or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, computer um, science seems like has I mean I don't want to say catch all I mean it's it's definitely a catch all department in a lot of places but it seems like computer science has always kind of accepted or created new media um, new tools and everything so it makes sense that you know this is really a lot of emerging technology at least in schools yeah so it makes sense for computer science kind of a forward looking field to be the home of this stuff and yeah, it I mean, seems like I'm, it's working for you guys yeah it is definitely working for us I don't think it has to be that model for everybody else but it does right. it does work for us we have a a hugely supportive administration. Um, which is really the other half of what can make you can be all gung ho and excited and want to do cool new things. And if you don't have a, a, a supportive administration to make that happen, it's probably not going to happen. Sure. So we had some crazy ideas and we had an administration that was like, we like crazy ideas and didn't feel, didn't make us feel like we were going to be attacked or like a, a punitive sort of approach to it where it was like, better make it work or, you know, your, your butts on the line. It was, it was, it's, it was very supportive. Um, environment to build something in and in that same idea of like iteration I need I needed to know that I could take those risks without without risking my career I mean I didn't want to right that's a scary thing to be able to do it at some point I gotta you know help pay the bills and right help support a family and that kind of stuff so sure justify um, leaving that uh, that hefty developer salary yeah I mean it took me <laughs> I think it was over 10 years or more I think it was well over 10 years before I made it back to where my salary was when I left, uh, when I, when I left industry and, and I'm not really that far past, I, I would have been way past it as a software engineer about oh, where, yeah. where I am now. But, um, but, uh, but also, I mean, I really, um, I really love teaching. So I've never looked back for a split second on, on that decision to, to leave industry. I really enjoy it. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, when you describe like your process of, I'm, I got my CS bachelor's degree. I'm in like a place like Motorola, which a lot of people would be like, oh man, I've, I've arrived. This is what I've been dreaming of since I started writing code when I was a teenager or whatever. But it sounds like you were really looking for meaning and you didn't find it there. And I mean, 
when I look around at this space and all the things that your students have made and just kind of hear you talk about it, it sounds like you found that. I, I, mean, I, 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 I you know, thanks for recognizing it. It's, it's, I, I do feel like I've, I found it and, um, and there's, there's like this special sort of sweet spot, I think with, with like an alignment that stars with lane and, uh, lane wanting to support that kind of stuff and wanting to grow and us having a really, um, awesome team we've been able to put together here. Right. We don't have any, like not this doesn't happen in every place, but when you have a, a department that's been around for a long time, you can get, um, you can get people ruffle each other's feathers and, sure. um, sometimes people have been around for a long time and they don't like new fresh blood and it, there's all kinds of like right. political dynamics that go into being in a, a being a teacher. But, um, our department is so new that we were really able to kind of build up, um, what and who we wanted from scratch. Sure. So what do you, what do you see kids? What do you see students usually making in this space? What are some typical, um, since, you know, we're not really seeing all of this great stuff around us. What do, what do you see uh, students usually making in here? What I try and do through most of the year is rotate the kids through one of the main, the two different tools, sort of get them comfortable and able to design in 2d, then I move on to 3d. Um, but the, the goal is to give them, um, a, 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 con a small project with constraints. So we do these little physical badges where they make a puzzle piece on each tool. Oh, great. And they, you can make that puzzle piece pretty much be about whatever you want within reason. But that puzzle, if you design that puzzle piece and you make it on the laser cutter, on a 3d printer, on a CNC mill, you, you have to, in order to make that, you're going to have to demonstrate full understanding of the tool chain and the workflow and designing and understanding how to use the tool and go through the whole process by yourself or with a helper, but go through that process and, and, and make that thing that says I've, I've completed that piece of the puzzle. So it's like a badging system, but we use actual physical badges and the puzzle pieces of that badge are, are the thing that they fill in to demonstrate that they've got that badge. So like an art, uh, you know, just like an artifact of each, right. of each station that yep. they go through. So there's the, the main ones we, we do the, um, vinyl cutter together first with everybody and, and we use it for other things besides vinyl this year. I like, I got too comfortable. So I was like, I mean, we're all making stickers, but what would make it much more stressful? And so I thought, let's just kind of blow the doors open and, um, let kids kind of use them for whatever they can find. So we had kids doing like vinyl masking with chemical etching. We had glass wow. etching and metal engraving. And, uh, one kid cut clay and then painted it with like a metallic paint and fired it. And like, so wow. I mean, we just kind of like, I was like, if you can find a tutorial that documents how to kind of do this safely, then it doesn't have to be a sticker. And so we really were able to do a lot. You can cut fabric and magnet paper and all kinds of cool stuff with those things. Sure. So um, we did that together. And then I break the students up into three uh, main rotations. And like, so three cohorts kind of. Mm -hmm. And one third is on laser cutters, one third's on 3D printers, one third's on CNC mills. And then built a series of tutorials to guide them through the design process and help them. But they then work on that puzzle piece and the design for that. And then they rotate. Um, so this, this was an attempt at keeping the whole lab active at the same time, instead of like the whole class doing 3d printing while laser cutters and CNC mills sat dormant and took a lot longer. So by doing it in thirds, we had sort of like everything about 10 kids on each, on each of those three main digital fabrication tools at the same time. And then when they rotate those kids that just completed that one are each a mentor for a kid that's about to do that one. 
So they're oh, mentoring wow. somebody else, but they're also the mentee of somebody else. And when they first run through their first job, they have to be, they have to have somebody that's guiding them through it that has just completed or just did it. And so this sped up sort of the, the learning process of the, of the logistics of the lab and learning to use the tools in here. And then um, got around the first semester, everybody having used everything in here for the most part. Then, then we can go on and do sort of bigger projects where instead right. of saying you have to use this tool or you have to use that tool, it's more about what, what's the right tool for the job, not I'm going to go build something and then be like, you got to use a hammer, man. And be like, all right, well, I don't, I don't really need a hammer. I need a screwdriver. Be like, nope, you got to use a hammer. So, right. so um, the two main projects they're working on now, one is uh, would take probably another couple podcasts to even get through, but it's it's – um, what we call the lane of things. Oh yeah. Um, so it's uh, a spinoff and partnership with uh, array of things in Chicago, uh, which is a large sensor node array project with um, Argonne National Labs, National Science Foundation, University of Chicago, and SAIC um, to instrument all these sensor nodes across the city of Chicago. Um, all totally open. Data is available to everybody. And I um, started working with the the head of the head people in that project um, who I know uh, through other channels and started thinking about how do we bring this to students and get students involved with this. So th we, um, with some funding, a lot of funding from Motorola Solutions Foundation, created what we call the Lane of Things, which is a spinoff of it. And we teach students to design and build uh, small environmental sensor nodes um, with microcontrollers. We use the particle photon, which we love. Oh, yeah. um, and a bunch of like low cost different sensors. And then we use digital fabrication tools in the space to build enclosures for them and then deploy them. And so we've done deployments here. Last year we deployed at Wrigley Field uh, with the Cubs. That was a very eye-opening project and wow. great and challenging in lots of different ways. And this year we're, um, the students are focused on four domains. So we have four classes um, and we have a Dan Law teaches a physical computing class that focuses much more on the um, on the electronic side of things, so right. microcontrollers and all that stuff. So his kids are handling more of the electronics, mine are handling, handling more of the digital fabrication. And our four domains are the music room, um, art room, which are both big, really big rooms. So there's a guitar studio and recording studio and a music room, and then a big art space, um, art studio. Um, then uh, we have an aquaponics, uh, lab here and a whole aquaponics program. So the aquaponics and zoology labs are another domain together. Um, and then the robotics lab and I'm, I'm part of the robotics program here. Um, so is Dan. And um, so those are the four main domains and mm -hmm. each class is working on designing and building um, devices that will help the teachers in those domains solve problems or make experience better in there whether it's like monitoring a lizard or the activity of a gerbil on a wheel to monitoring ph levels and temperature and water levels in tanks so that fish uh, like the tilapia don't die um, to the chlorina chlorination tank that they have in aquaponics to like monitoring um, uh, current flow on machinery in the robotics lab so you can see how machines are used and and um, dust sensors to monitor the environment wow. so this so the kids right now what you're hearing being 3D printed are a couple of things, but one is um, parts of the enclosure that different teams are building for that particular project. Um, 
we have a spinoff of the spinoff through that grant that we call the School of Things. And we're um, teaching teachers about how to use that curriculum in their own spaces and how to how to implement those, how, how to implement lane of things at their own school. So we call it School of Things, which is S-O-F-T, so it's, we call it soft. That's great. And lane of things is loft. So yeah. So that's um, one of the two things going on here. And the second one is um, uh, a project I've been dreaming up for at least a couple of years now. So a few years ago, I did a big Chicago flag mosaic project that um, got some pretty solid press. And Yeah, it was amazing. Thank you. It was, um, well, I say thank you. I, I had the idea, but the kids did all the cool stuff. So, uh, but so on on their behalf, thank you. Um, but yeah, the uh, that project <clears throat> turned out really really cool, and it was at Navy Pier for eight months um, on display, and then it's been at the Museum of Science and Industry since. Um, it's in the group uh, group entrance right now, and it's going to be part of a new um, their new exhibit outside the fab lab coming up. Oh, congratulations. That's Thanks. amazing. Yeah, super cool. So, um, and all the kids names are up by it. And so they're all get, get credit and uh, it's, um, it was a big success. So as a, as a sort of spinoff of that, um, and thanks to a really, really incredibly awesome woman, uh, Gabe Lyons, mm -hmm. uh, from, uh, she was at the Chicago architecture foundation, um, and, and spearheaded the whole, uh, um, Geez, why space on it? Uh, uh, no, uh, no small plans. Sorry. Oh yeah, so, yeah, the graphic novel. Yeah, the yeah. graphic novel, no small plans, which they just did. She just went and did this whole thing in like in Washington State. So yeah, they did like just, a whole other iteration. Just back to Kickstarter yesterday. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah, super awesome. Same. Um, so uh, being involved with Gabe and working on um, no small plans a little bit, I was thinking, all right, what could we do that would be really cool to get just more civic engagement focused on digital fabrication, getting kids to be working on something that they would be passionate about and care about and um, wanna work on. Um, and so what I did was I had uh, assigned, there's 77 community areas in Chicago that are like the only defined boundaries within Chicago. It's from the 1920s, came from the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. This is all part of that graphic novel. Right. And, um, and those 77 community areas I assigned randomly to different students or pairs of students and they couldn't get the community area that they lived in. Right. And then they had to read, we all read the book together. We debriefed the book together, um, had a lot of discussion about it um, and what the important points are about the book. And then uh, each student, ha um, I used the Chicago 77, which is another, another book that um, has a, a couple pages on each of the community areas. So use that and then additional research and had the students figure out what was what are the sort of key elements or important parts of that community what would make what would make people in that community proud to have represent them right um it, it could be anything from a donut shop that used to exist but doesn't or a bakery to something really like martin luther king lived there or gives it's all kinds of really really fascinating stories about all these community areas and so then what i did was i gave them i randomly assigned the main tool of the three that they had to feature. Sure, which of uh, the digital fabrication, the digital fabrication tools. tools yep. Yeah. And then they, I gave them the vector for that particular community area. So there's some, you know, wonky shaped outline of their particular piece, but to scale, like at the right size. Right, so like the geographical shape of yep. that area. Okay, yep. got it, and yeah. And it's what's on that 
I'll, I'll show you. It's on that table right below that looked like it was a disaster because it is right now, but we're, we're getting there. It's but a work in progress. It is very much a work in progress. Um, and we're running out of time. But um, so the idea is that each kid um, 3D carves, 3D prints, laser cuts, and, and sort of a mosaic again, similar to that flag, but except this time when you put the pieces of the mosaic together, it forms the actual city of Chicago. So each of the oh, community wow. area pieces is in the shape of that community area. And so when they put it together, you should see this sort of 3D relief um, design of all 77 community areas. And then I'm having each student write um, write a uh, like a one-pager almost or shorter about what their motivation was, why they chose those things, what was important about it, um, why they why they thought what they made would be a good representation, and that people in that community area would think, I'm proud. That's that is my community area. I'm proud of what you did, and because they're a steward of that community area. Sure. Yeah. And then, if all goes well, I don't know where we'll get with this, but uh, my my grand scheme thought was um, to take really really high quality pictures of it and maybe make a book and have a picture of the community area and then the one pager from the student and then all the students in the and the class would be authors of that book like credit as authors and then and then sell it as a fundraising thing to bring money back into the program so so a lot of teachers struggle with how to assess this work i mean some people say creativity can't be assessed other people say of course it can it's measurable just like anything else what are some strategies you use to assess this kind of work because it's Where's the off the record button yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> we'll turn the mics off yeah, now. Yeah. and this is the part where i lose my job uh i really hate grades and sure. i really I really hate grading and I really hate having to apply grades to stuff. But um, that doesn't mean I don't understand the total importance of assessment. And um, the importance of assessment, assessment for me is not so that I can penalize a kid for not completing something. It's to assess, to help them gauge where they are and everything. And then so that they can apply that and, and know where they need to need to work more on. So it's, Assessment's really important to help students understand where they stand, but um, the the um, sort of punitive aspects of grading and the deductions and the this many points for that and all the BS that goes in with it in so many school settings, um, I really loathe all that. Um, so here I'd, I, I've been struggling with this for 17 years, so this class and some of this is just a realization as recent as like within a few weeks ago where I'm like constantly trying to revise how I do this. I've started in my much more technical class, the microarchitecture and logic design class. I'm, I've moved to, well, I'm, I'm sort of new to it, but I'm trying to move to a much like an almost hundred percent mastery based setup. Mm -hmm. I need you to be able to master these skills. I'm going to help you get there. Uh, have you been able to demonstrate mastery of that of that skill? And if you have, then you get credit for it. Sure. And if it means that you didn't get it right the first time, you have to try ten more times. Um, and I and I give a quiz or something like that. And this you haven't been able to demonstrate mastery of the skill, then you don't get the credit for it yet. But if you come to me and before the grades are due, you can demonstrate that you've mastered that skill. I'll give a hundred percent of credit back, not half credit, not not yeah. Well, it took you longer. I mean, it's gonna I got. 33 kids in one of those classes, it's gonna take some kids longer to get to things than others. And I have to figure out a way to pace a class for 33 different learning styles and 33 different comfort levels with speed. And uh, you're, it's, 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 a, 
it's one of the times where in the education system, if you're a teacher, you really understand why numbers matter in classes, why, why class size matters. Right. So 33 is a lot of kids. Um, so I was thinking, okay, I want to do this mastery level thing everywhere. But then I realized in this class, it's hard to do that as a hundred percent kind of thing because there are certain aspects of mastery in here. More than half the class is like that, right? I need you to be able to show me that you understand how to design and use a laser cutter or 3D printer, CNC mill, whatever. But at the, on the flip side of that, there's larger scale projects that we're doing and I need you to get stuff done in time. Like, like the community area project, um, I need to get a sketch done. We, we start, always start with sketching. We start with an idea, we write about it, then we sketch. Mm -hmm. um, I want them to practice that a lot. Um, then once we sketch, then we do some sort of prototyping, whether it's lo-fi prototyping or 3D modeling before we ever start actually physically making this stuff. And I, I need people to stay on point with that. I need you to get a sketch done, take a picture of it and submit it so that we can look through it and move on to the next step. Sure. And that's that's less about can you master that and more about um, problem-based learning stuff. I, it, there's a time component to it. Sure. And it's not that I need you to do it perfect the first time. I just need you to get it done. Like, right. And, and so for School those- School year has an end. Yeah, we, yeah. Have, we have time constraints that we have to work within. So for those things, my grading is like, get it done in time, look like you put some effort into it, care about it, and you get some credit for it. And then if you, if it's like super late, I got kids like turning stuff in, the sketch and we're finishing the project right now. And they're like, oh, I need to get that sketch in. I'm like, it's kind of, kind of too late. Like I don't, we don't need the sketch anymore. We're well past that. So I'll give like partial credit back on that. But anytime I'm dealing with that, I just get annoyed because I really just want to sit and help and work through things. And the grade, the grade part doesn't always jive with me all that well. There, there's a thing I even see, um, I want to be careful because I don't want to, I don't want to like um, throw shade at anybody, but in teaching and it happens in this school, you'll get like requests from some teachers to say like, kids, can you give your kids extra credit for going to the play or something? And immediately I have this like reaction in me where I'm thinking, why would I give my computer science students extra credit to go to a play? It has nothing to do with demonstrating their understanding of computer science in this particular course. Right. So what happens is those points and those grades are become a commodity. They're like something that you can go to this fundraiser and you can get some extra credit or go do this and you get some extra credit. And it's just all about then about like dealing points and right. it's, and it's, it becomes a marketplace mm -hmm. and it really to me gets away from the entire point of what grading and assessment is supposed to be about. I much rather say, Hey, I know it took you 39 weeks to pull it off, but you just showed me that you totally understand that concept. And in the grade book, I have it as that you don't understand it. Now I want to, I'll, I'll give you full credit back. You understand it now. That's the point of the grade, right? Right. Point so, of school in general, I, yeah, I would the point, say. Yeah, the point is, if you can, if it's at a, I had somebody ask me an interesting question lately, like, what if they learned it at a different place? What if they went, it was a makerspace project or something, and they and they did it at another place, at the library, and all I could think was, that's fine. I don't, yeah. that's totally fine. I just, I need to know that you understand this concept, and if you get it from somewhere else, or if I'm not one, the one that can do a good enough job to teach it to you, but somebody else can, I just need to know that you know it, and if it's if it takes longer, then that's okay. And so, with certain technical concepts, it's a lot easier to do that. It's harder to do it on the on the stuff that really like timing matters. Right. Yeah. I mean, you've been doing this for a while, and I really feel like you're like a pioneer in this work. What advice do you have for teachers that are looking to incorporate, 
you know, traditional technology like carpentry or emerging technology like 3D printing, what do you, what advice do you have to them to like, as they kind of just kind of dip their toe into that water and start doing this? I guess first I would say dive all in. Like, uh, you have to go make those same mistakes that everybody else made to get where they are. So I know that when I have people come through my lab or I have other teachers come through or teachers and administrators that are thinking about implementing something like this, what a big fear I have, and I know what happens is like people look and they think, well, he knows a bunch about this. And like, I, I know, I don't obviously know everything and I've made so many mistakes and that's really part of how I've grown on it. But I, I had, I had to get where I got by making mistakes and, and by iteration and what I get nervous of is that people come in and they're like, I mean, you already know all, you know, all this stuff about 3d printers, you know, all this stuff about laser cutting and that's, that's really intimidating. And I don't know, I don't, I don't really know what I'm doing. So I don't really want to jump in and it's really scary and I don't want to intimidate someone out of, out of trying that. But I can promise that the only reason I, I, I've, I mean, I see it as a, you know, it's obviously a constant journey. So I have a long way to go, but I've learned a lot along the way. And the only way I got to where I was was just by doing it and asking for help. I have no shame in asking for help. Sure. Um, and certain people helped me build this space and helped um, lend a hand and advice. Uh, Inventables, um, Zach Kaplan, mm -hmm. uh, CEO of Inventables is a, is a good friend and, um, and his, him and a couple of people at his company really helped me figure out like what I, what some of the things are I really needed to have in here because mm -hmm. I really didn't know what I was doing. So I had, I had to ask for help. And even with that help, I made tons of mistakes and I just kind of have tweaked and tweaked and tweaked and tweaked. I'm, I'm shameless when it comes, I have like no fear or shameless when it comes to asking either for help or, uh, asking uh like hel helping my students get access to resources and opportunities mm -hmm. so it's a really easy ask i never feel guilty about it so i'll just say to like today i just one of my students was two two of my students in one class um both got into harvard one on a full ride and one on a near full ride wow and it's really really awesome and they're both super awesome kids um and not that that's the main goal and we're not you know, it's not putting down anything anybody else has done, but sure. it's a pretty, it's a pretty um, big feat to, to pull that off. And, um, one of them, I just hooked up with, uh, an internship for, with the array of things team. Um, he's a really good kid. He's thirsty for new stuff and we've got a good team of people looking. And so all it took was, um, me saying, Hey, I got a really awesome kid. I've got a bunch of them. So if anybody's listening to this and you're looking for really committed interns and students, I've got. I've got more students than there are opportunities that, that are looking for fulfilling paid internships. I'm very adamant about the paid part. I think the yeah. students need to get, I think, I think interns need to get paid for their, for their work. Yeah. I think all internships should be paid. Yeah. Cause That's, there's a big, there's a big opportunity gap that happens with that kind of stuff too. A lot of people can't afford to not get paid. I yeah, got, exactly. I got, I got students. I got one student that works 40 hours a week at home Depot. She can't, and she's really awesome and she can't, she can't afford an unpaid internship. Right. So that's going to limit opportunities for her. So, um, so for everybody listening, pay your yes, interns, pay please. your interns. Yeah. And don't, it's an internship. Isn't like go get coffee. Internship is it's, it's more like, it should be more like an apprenticeship and, yeah, and teaching the kids mentoring. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, uh, I, I 
I try and do as much as I can to get my students access to opportunities and resources whenever I can. And I'm also very adamant about doing that for all my students, regardless of their documentation status. So documented, undocumented, every different flavor from every different angle of life. Um, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll help anybody. I love helping my students. And that's, and they're that's all nice. your students. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely all my students. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and we live in you know some pretty trying times when it comes to some of this stuff. So. Oh, yeah. It sounds like they're lucky to have you. Um, well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking this time. Um, I've taken enough of your uh, after school time here. But uh, where can people find you, like uh, social media? What's your online presence like? I sometimes yell into the ether on uh, on on Twitter, but uh, so my personal one is just at Jeff Solon, um, and same on Instagram. I post pic. I'm not very interesting on there. Um, my labs Twitter is at LT Makers. Uh, my department's Twitter is at Lane Tech Comp Sci. Um, and uh, you can go to ltmakers.org. Is also um, our, I've been trying to put this site together just to kind of highlight and showcase some of the work that we've been doing in here. Sure. And also um, cs.lanetech.org uh, is our department site and put a lot of work into that so that you can see a lot about our program and our computer science courses on there. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much, I think, the the online presence. If you, if you, retweet us or follow us then the smart lights in the lab blink purple oh awesome so all right kids, so everybody so kids know yeah so yeah. if you um go follow the yeah, lab go follow the lab and and, the, yeah. and you'll make the lights blink in here that's awesome <laughs> all right man well thank you so much and uh yeah thank you for talking to us no, thanks for having me i appreciate it thank you for listening to the depth and light podcast i'd like to say thanks again to jeff solon and lane tech i hope you enjoyed our conversation for more info about what we're up to, check out our website at depthandlight.com. That's D-E-P-T-H-A-N-D-L-I-G-H-T.com. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle at depthandlight.